0: You're listening to Bede, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920-1950. to Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. The
1: 1689 Baptist Confession, Article 2, Section 3 of God and the Holy Trinity, uh, it reads this way. This divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity. Each having the whole divine essence, without this essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without beginning, and are therefore only one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished. By several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on Him. What a great statement there, the Baptist Confession of Faith, at Article 2, Section 3. Now, the mystery of the Trinity is at the heart of the gospel. Indeed, without the Trinity, there is no Christianity. So, given this, Why does the Trinity seem to be one of the more neglected doctrines in the church? Now, this is not to say that our doctrinal statements don't include an Orthodox Trinitarian statement, but at the functional level, it may be appropriate to consider the forgotten Trinity. We'll take, for example, preaching. In chapter 39 of his recent book, Some Pastors and Teachers, uh, Sinclair Ferguson offers his Ten Commandments for Preachers. When Ferguson gets to his fourth commandment, he exhorts us to be, quote, deeply Trinitarian. He writes, furthermore, my concern here arises from a sense that Bible-believing preachers, as well as others, continue to talk or think of the Trinity as the most speculative and therefore the least practical of all doctrines. After all, what can you do as a result of hearing preaching that emphasizes God as Trinity? Well, at least inwardly, if not outwardly, fall down in worship that the God whose being is so ineffable, so incomprehensible to my mental math, seeks fellowship with us. Well, according to Ferguson, that's pretty practical worship, right? The very practical thing of worship. That's what study, thinking on the Trinity will do for Christians. So, indeed, for Ferguson, a neglect of the Trinity will undermine worship so it's a big deal that's uh what we're trying to say here by way of introduction the trinity is at the heart of christianity and it ought to be at the heart of our worship so michael here we are uh continuing our pilgrimage through the baptist confession of faith and do you think ferguson though is on to something when he talks about in essence the the neglected trinity Uh, do we tend to think of the trinity as too impractical to be of any use in the christian life and if so how can this confession of faith help us here
2: yeah i think the confession is enormously helpful here because it you know the, look at the way it ends it says that the um the doctrine of trinity is the foundation of all our communion with god and our comfor- comfortable dependence on him and so obviously the 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 authors of uh, this document Felt that the fellowship that we have with God is grounded in the fact that God is a triune being, and that our the strength of our dependence on God. um, I take it the comfortable here means more than the word means for us. It's the it's that old use of the word in English um, that was common in the seventeenth century, where the word to comfort means to strengthen. So the comforter is the strengthener uh and comfortable means you know strengthening dependence on him or strengthens dependence on him um, so i think they 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 saw it very much as absolutely foundational to the christian life uh, utterly foundational it's the it's the the most important christian doctrine um, and you see you see that in statements in the 17th and 18th century uh, particular baptists who you know they they obviously this is their confession but you see it in their the, the writings of various figures um, in the the century that followed.
1: Well, Michael, I want to jump in here because you bring up something really important. If I could jump in on something you said there, uh, that, that line at the end of the Baptist Confession of Faith, so the 1689, what's interesting to me is that's absent in the Westminster. So as I looked at that, the, the 1689 is a much more robust uh, confession in terms of the Trinity And I wanted to ask you just historically, when I look at the Baptist Confession of Faith, being longer and adding language like that, what was going on, for example, in the 17th century among Baptists that might have required, for example, a more robust statement on the Trinity, adding language that even the Westminster Confession didn't? Any any thoughts there?
2: Yeah, I mean, definitely by the late 18th, 17th century, rather um, rather than the 1640s, by the 1670s, uh, you have the threat of Sassanianism in, in, in England. So John Owen finds himself in a number of his works, for instance, that are after the era of the Civil War and the Commonwealth, the Republic. Um, in the 1660s, 1670s, having to battle against a uh, a nascent Sassanianism. and so it could very well be that um, the more robust, the the, large, the fact that the the Second London Confession is a more robust statement than that in the Westminster reflects the fact that the doctrine of the Trinity is beginning to be under attack. In fact, by the 1690s, within a few Years of this document uh, There is a major battleground uh, Over the doctrine of the Trinity which persists all through the 18th century Um, and um, So there could have been uh, the authors of this could have maybe anticipated that um, or they could have been thinking about Sassanianism my suspicion is the latter Um, And the the language there of comfortable and communion uh that i think that's like it'd be interesting to look at john owen and see if he ever uses those phrases in relation to the doctrine of trinity because owen has that famous book on communion with god which where he details communion with the father communion with the son communion with the holy spirit what they what that is volume two
1: gotta get gotta have that volume
2: two of his 16 volumes
1: on communion with god yes
2: yeah so i'm wondering if that's also in the background here um but yeah, that, that is, it's very noticeable. It's just, it, the, the Westminster does not contain that final sentence.
1: Well, it's interesting, Michael, and you're so good at reminding us that certain periods in church history require certain statements about orthodox doctrine, and in this case, the Trinity. And you're right, maybe certain authors uh, in the Baptist tradition were foreseeing things that were coming, and they were anticipating uh, the need for a more robust statement. Uh, maybe they were picking up on Owen and and others, but I, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you this too. Who would you read on the Trinity? As long as we're talking about, you brought up Owen. I mean, if you, if you, I'll put it to you this way. If you could only have five books or or less on the Trinity and uh, other than the Bible, who are you trusting? Who are you going to read?
2: Yeah, that's very good. Um, wow. I think the first, I mean, obviously the, the early figures, um, Uh, Augustine on the Trinity is absolutely vital, uh, especially for understanding Western thought. Um, And then further back, uh, uh, Basil of Caesarea um, on the Holy Spirit. Um, Since I've only got five, I would have included Irenaeus, um, but uh, we only have five. Um, Possibly Richard of St. Victor, in his work on the trinity in the high middle ages i wonder if anyone I know in our of-
1: audience has heard of again richard i don't know this richard who richard of saint
2: victor well
1: you yeah, say it as if a- you know richard <laughs> uh,
2: yeah richard of Saint victor he's he's got a beautiful book on huh. uh the trinity and the the work of the spirit in illuminating leading us to 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 know god in his triunity i mean a lot of people cite aquinas um and i know there's a big there's a bit of a ha about reading aquinas today and all that aside um <laughs> why, why are we put that
1: aside maybe we should just bring that right into the
2: to to the heart of
1: this program but no go ahead
2: well maybe we should do after we've done the the second letter confession we'll do you know there you go uh, why read thomas uh i i mean I, I everything that's good in thomas is found in augustine uh, on the trinity so okay. i tend to i tend to be more augustinian I, I don't see anything Thomas doing that you can't find in Augustine, and maybe that's because I haven't read Augustine in Aquinas enough. Um, and then I would, I would probably look at um, that's four already, right? Well, you can so, break three. the rules. I, I mean, yeah, you,
1: you, if you have to go past five,
2: Richard of Saint Victor, um, John Gill, okay, John Gill, either in the Body Divinity. Uh, or the doctrine, his doctrine, Trinity, the second edition in the 1760s. Um, Jonathan Edwards' essay on the Trinity, which didn't see the light of day till 1903, um, published uh, posthumously, obviously uh, on the second, third, second anniversary, second 200th anniversary of his de- of birth. Uh, it's a gem, and um, okay. would that he had finished that. Um, uh also in there i think calvin calvin you know on the trinity and um his Institutes. i
1: was going to ask you about that michael because I, th- I think in our circles everybody thinks they know calvin so when i say our circles i mean at southern seminary and i found this with my students i don't i don't find a lot of people reading calvin and i think they're impoverished for not reading calvin well on everything not least of which the trinity so you would put him up there with some of the best.
2: Yeah, I would, okay. and I, I I would because of the following reasons. So when when Calvin's converted, he's he attends a conference in the 1530s, and he's asked prior to the it's 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 it, it, it's one of those kind of disputations that took place between Protestants and Catholics, and um, he's asked to confess the uh, the uh, his agreement with the Nicene Creed, and he refuses. Um, he refuses because he wants to insist that the the standard, the gold standard for discussion is going to be not any document after the Bible. So he almost sounds like a bibicist. Mm-hmm. And uh, then in the 1550s, he finds problems in Geneva because he's got a guy named Michael Cervantes, mm-hmm. um, Miguel uh, Cervantes, uh, who is Spanish. Um, who had been arrested by Roman Catholic authorities of the Inquisition in Spain. They were going to burn him I don't know how he got out of prison, but he escaped and he wrote to Calvin. He said I'm, I'm on my way to Geneva And Calvin warned him. He said don't come here He said if you come here and we discover you you'll you'll get arrested You'll be put on trial for heresy because he was a, he was a Unitarian denied the deity of Christ denied mm-hmm. the Trinity and um, servetus so was a bit unhinged, I think mentally because despite the fact that he pleaded for religious liberty he he felt that somehow there was going to be this apocalyptic showdown between him and calvin that would usher in the end times so he made his way to geneva and he's he's caught because he's he's hiding behind one of the pillars in the cathedral and somebody spots him and he's arrested and sure enough he's put on trial and um calvin finds in servetus's defense he says you know i You know i'm just appealing to the bible and calvin realizes that uh there is this biblicistic approach to scripture which can twist the word of god uh certain verses that ends up denying the trinity and um calvin really does he does a backtrack and so we find Calvin, in fact, in the period of 1550s writing a creedal statement, which defends the use of extra biblical language, like eternal generation, eternal procession, because he recognizes that you've got somebody who says, oh yeah, Jesus is the son of God, of course he is. But, but what he means by that is that somehow Jesus became the son of God at the time of the incarnation or because of his ministry or what have you. So Calvin, Begins is a one of things I've always heard about Calvin is that Calvin never changes his theology. As soon as he issues the Institutes, you know you've got a full blown systematic theologian who never really shifts on anything, but he actually does on the doctrine of Trinity. He he doesn't see any necessity for extra biblical language, but by the end of his career, he recognizes this is absolutely important to capture the essence of Scripture. So the doctrine of Trinity, as it's defined by you know Nicene Trinitarianism summed up in the little phrase three persons sharing one substance um while that is not cannot be found exactly word for word in scripture nonetheless it captures what the the entire the entire scope of scripture bears witness to that in the father the son and the holy spirit we we see the, the one and true and living god so calvin is interesting and i I, the reason why i like the confessions the 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 institutes rather is that he's battled through this personally Mm -hmm. to the point that he recognizes that the catholic tradition now using the word catholic as universal of nicene trinitarianism is indeed the tradition that has to be defended because it is a tradition that is drawn from biblical evidence Mm. the last person i would probably look at is um the essays of bb warfield on that deal with mm-hmm. um i know not that some of warfield's emphases but they're absolutely remarkable he's got an essay called the father and god the god and father of our lord jesus christ and it is an exegetical piece in which he basically is hammering uh the german liberal critics who basically want to make jesus just um a a jewish rabbi in the first century and he is I mean, he is so good. Um, So we we have a very rich history, but we have neglected it, and we've forgotten it.
1: Well, I I love what you've done here, Michael, and I'm just going to put you on the spot, and I didn't prep you for this, but let me summarize. You've got, and we we should have a whole show on this. Um, Augustine, you call him. I thought Protestants referred to him as Augustine. But it's okay to call him Augustine, even as a Protestant. <laughs>
2: I've never heard that distinction. Sorry.
1: Yes. Uh, no, that's okay. Yeah, I always say Augustine. Uh, well, good, good. Uh, and Maybe it says so on the it's because I'm a Canadian. Well, tomato, tomato. I don't know that it matters. But uh, Augustine or Augustine. Here you've got um, Basil of Caesarea. Uh, or Basil, excuse me. Uh, Richard of St. Victor. So there we've got Three. Uh, you put in, a, you had to add a Baptist. So you got John Gill yeah. in there. Very good. Now you went over five, but that's okay. You've got Edwards. You couldn't resist at 1903 when it finally surfaced his work on the Trinity. Uh, you said what? It didn't see the light of day until 1903. Right. Uh, okay. And then of course, Calvin, because I brought him up and you said, yep, got it. Calvin's good. Um, we went beyond five. That's okay. And then the one more, B.B. B. Warfield. Yeah. So, we we've got seven just for the fun of it. it you now you're stranded on a deserted island, okay? And you could you have your Bible and you can have one work on the Trinity. <laughs> I'm gonna narrow it down now. Not gonna give you this freedom. It's too easy. What do you take on the island? You want the Trinity?
2: Uh, then I would take Augustine, I think.
1: Okay, okay. I thought you might say
2: that. Yeah. Um, you, you take Augustine um, with you. Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, uh, calvin's this way too and so is basil but there is a, a doxological element to the way that they d- do theology mm-hmm. um which is so uh, so important
1: oh i agree couldn't agree more it's why i love calvin so much people they might only know of him with that servetus uh affair and even then i don't think they understand it as they ought. Bruce Gordon is yes, a very, yeah, Bruce Gordon, help, yeah, helpful very helpful guide. Yeah, yeah, and his biography, that chapter eleven, yep. is just fantastic. I recommend it Thank to I all agree. my students. People um, don't realize the pastoral um, pleading that went on for years from Calvin to call him to repentance. And uh, yeah, I mean, Calvin, so, for
2: instance, when cervantes was in, cervantes wanted to meet him in the mid-1530s. So this is 20 years they they knew each other at yeah. least and calvin goes back to paris at the risk of his own life to meet servetus and Mm -hmm. um there is a strong pastoral concern for the soul of servetus i mean both you and i probably would would disagree with calvin thinking that execution of a heretic is not inappropriate but there's more than simply power and authority going on here, um, it did become Great. a political affair. Um, mm-hmm. But again, as with you know, as with say you know Oliver Cromwell, and um, you know his the siege of uh, Drogheda and Wexford, and the atrocities that were committed in battle, um, you know Dabney asking God to blast the North because of the loss of the Civil War um mm-hmm. men like who we have admiration for brought us and 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 uh, boys, uh owning slaves and these things all these things we mm-hmm. find reprehensible but yeah. we also recognize that these are men of god who failed like david and abraham and peter and unlike us
1: and add to that would you agree michael what calvin was dealing with in geneva uh, was also a very different polity than anything we could consider today i mean the the interplay of the magistrate with the church again that's not to absolve calvin but ultimately it wasn't his verdict
2: no 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 i mean he he is not the judge he's only a a witness for the the prosecution he has no final say i mean he obviously has a lot of input because of his moral yes. standing as a preacher of the gospel but the people who controlled the final sentencing of uh Servetus were the libertines who are calvin's opponents that's right
1: so important to understand uh, all that context and again we're making an apology for church history and understanding yep. things in in their context And as you said, and we're not—we're not trying to absolve anybody of anything. We're just trying to gain. Yeah, exactly. I
2: mean, when I read church history, and you know, like this statement is is the same. uh, I'm I'm wanting to do two things. One is, yeah, okay, what 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 utility does it have for us today? But I'm first of all, as a historian, wanting to understand, uh, what is being said here and why. And that's my first calling and then secondly okay then how does this how do i relate to this today but what we have today so frequently is judgment being made without understanding yeah i I don't like this you know because it doesn't doesn't ring true of you know what i believe therefore i'm going to condemn it
1: and michael one of the things i think you do so well as a historian and why so many people obviously love to read your work, you, you literally, in, in so many ways, not literally, but you take us back in time. And it's so important, I think, for a historian to do that long before we do application or, or try to say, look for it, we're always craving the relevance. Well, we'll get there, but first we have to go back and interpret these things in their own time, in their own place, in their own context, with all the cultural mores and everything that's going on there, then and only then, I think, try to bridge it into our life or draw out those principles that we can from, from church history. But I think that would add a lot of humility to us today if we were willing to go back in time, as it were, and understand things on their own terms.
2: Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, when we when we fail to do that, there was a book written in the 1960s. It was called The Ugly American. I don't know if you've ever read it. Graham Greene. I haven't. And it had nothing to do with physical appearance. It had to do with the way North Americans uh, tend to only know their own culture and go into other cultures, you know, with a attitude of superiority. And, you know, though it's, you know, why, why don't they do it the way they do it in America, you know? And um, you could easily say, you know, the ugly 21st century people, because without mm-hmm. without that sense of humility when we look at the past and immediately start to judge it um we're we're like we like we like the the traveler who goes to different cultures and immediately starts to condemn them um because they don't do things the way they do back in america and um mm. yeah i've said I've seen examples of this that it would take us too far afield. So we'll, well, that. well
1: every time, every time we talk, Michael, I, I think here's here's a program that we need a topic. We need to dedicate to a whole program because I mean, we could say so much of American uh, history is, is, uh, is wanting to be canceled as it were, but, but it's really a Western civilization oh, yeah. issue oh, yeah. today, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you know that it's just fascinating to see, uh how the whole western tradition is in some ways being I'm gonna be careful with my words um uh uh there's there's just a hubris in the yeah,
2: critique yeah, because <laughs> because this begins in the 18th century it begins with the attack on tradition in the 18th century so the reformers when so Calvin you know he's 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 having to deal with Savatus, and so he goes back to the tradition. He goes back and he's reading Augustine. He's reading Mm -hmm. uh, Basil. He's reading Didymus the Blind. The same with Gill. What's amazing about Gill's work on the Trinity is the footnotes, and he's reading the fathers. Um, But beginning in the eighteenth century, you have this massive attack on the tradition, and it has succeeded. It succeeded by producing hubristic, ugly moderns who see no place for the past. And uh, their, own, their own thoughts are the, the, the category or the standard by which they judge everything in the past. And um, so here again with the Trinity, um, if, if, we, if we went back to some of these figures and we, we, we would see the way in which they dealt with the Trinity on a regular basis and, and yeah, were Trinitarian in worship and in prayer doxologically Trinitarian, in Trinitarian in thinking, we would realize how much we've lost. And the 20th century, up until probably you get the recovery with maybe some of the Catholic authors at the end of the 20th century, like von Balthasar, um, it, it, it's, it's a bit of a wasteland when it comes to the doctrine of Trinity. Um Evangelicals who, hmm. for whom it should have been preeminent I don't. I can't think of one important work written on the Trinity by an evangelical after Warfield. Up until probably the nineteen. That's quite a
1: statement, Michael.
2: That's. You know, maybe the the first one is that I comes to mind is the Forgotten Father by Thomas Smale, who is a charismatic Presbyterian, just a remarkable Mm. author in many ways. Um, That's probably the nineteen seventies, I think. Mm. J.I. Packer, Knowing God. That is really mm-hmm. rich, mm-hmm. but it's richer than the Trinitarian emphasis. I think so. so that would be—I forget when he started. To, there were articles, right, in a journal, 1960, maybe. Yeah. And what?
1: Well, what you're highlighting there, Michael, I've seen that—that's a chapter in a book. But you're yeah. talking about—is there a—is there a monograph of, of real substantial work on on the Trinity? we could even say in the well 21st i think century, oh yeah there definitely is the but 20s. by the
2: 1990s they're starting to realize among evangelicals that we, we we've been missing something for nearly a century but that that is mm. so that is so telling and theology has a trickle-down effect i guess and that's why you know you go to our churches and you, you hear people thanking the father for dying for them on the cross Um, Deacons uh, praying at the Lord's table. I've heard this Mm -hmm. time, well, not tons of times, but enough times to disturb me. Uh, Billy Graham's daughter, Anne Graham Lotz, I heard her once at a women's um, conference. Um, I wasn't at the conference. I was listening to a recording of it, and she's praying, and she's, you know, very gifted. But here she is thanking the Father for dying for her. you might be saying you're 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 just a meanie (laughs) you know these people are praying and you're critiquing their prayers but i think it reveals there we as evangelicals we have we have two texts we have the bible and we have our hymns but in certain traditions you have things like the book of common prayer which are which have rich trinitarian Mm -hmm. prayers so you just you normally will not get people in those traditions Wandering off into prayers that, basically, on the face of it, are heretical. Yep, they
1: are. Yeah, and and at, at some point, th- this is sure. training our people how to think about sure. the great doctrines of the Bible. So, rather than, I, I know what you mean people say, "How dare you, you know, critique a prayer?" Come on. I mean, as evangelicals, we're just happy someone's praying, right? Well, we we can't be just happy somebody's praying. Uh, And this is where we could tie it back in, Michael, uh, to the value of our confessions. And in particular, the the Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, it keeps these doctrines alive right before us. And what it takes. I mean, if we're going to be in line
2: with uh, the church as she has developed over the centuries, um, we need to be confessional. And the first mm-hmm. point of confession is who is God? And uh, I mean, the big, yes. you know, we people might think the big battle we're facing is with um, issues of transgenderism and uh, homosexual agendas, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The big battle we're facing is Islam. Is, are there a billion mm-hmm. Muslims in the world? if there aren't they're very close to it i mean islam is growing by leaps and bounds Mm. in parts of africa and uh our african brothers and sisters know the power of islam as a force to be reckoned with um the, the 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 secular immoral agenda of the west is hollow and where there's a vacuum, it'll be filled. Uh, France. If you look at France, southern France, a lot of the urban centers like Lyon, uh, Toulouse, um, th- th- there's significant pockets of Islam there. Uh, the town I was born in, Birmingham, large pockets of Islam. It's actually uh, you know described almost. I mean, it's, the, it's, the, it's probably the most important center for Islam in the in Western Europe, and. The doctrine of trinity is the critical issue that we battle with islam as well as obviously the issue of the quran being revelation and the death of christ and his resurrection but at the heart of it is the trinity the quran is an anti-trinitarian book mm-hmm. the doctrine
1: yep that's right so the doctrine of god is is what we're saying is at the forefront and here our confessional history as protestants uh well of course, predating the Reformation, uh, that rich body of of literature is what we've got to keep before the church. Yeah, we often think that, that, that the the problem is from within, and of course it is. There's there's Trinitarian doctrine that needs to be worked out in our churches. But well, you're pointing to Michael. I wonder if a lot of our listeners think of it this way. It's the it's the threat from without. So here, this other major world religion that is at its heart yeah it is
2: and uh i, I it was actually an, uh, a lecture many years ago by james white on islam that alerted me to the realization I, I went back and read the quran and i realized that at every step of the road there is this anti-trinitarianism all the way to the end and in fact at one point it says you know mm-hmm. stop speaking about the trinity and actually says those who speak about the trinity will go to hell it couldn't be any more explicit. And our great, our great battle for the minds of men and women in a global context is with Islam. Um, because, and I think one of the problems for Western mm-hmm. observers is they don't understand why men and women are willing to die for their religious convictions. But Muslims are, many fundamentalist Muslims and um Mm -hmm. there is a power there uh without a shadow of a doubt that we we need to reckon with and for that reason i think that the whole issue of the trinity we need we need to we need to be firmly grounded in this doctrine and um if you look at some of the the eighth and ninth century christian commentators like timothy of baghdad um and their battles with um uh, debates with muslims uh, timothy of baghdad is a remarkable figure you know patriarch um of the church of the east mm. sending out missionaries as far as mongolia uh sri lanka um and he has a he has a long debate <clears throat> with the caliph the the ruler of the entire muslim world at that point because the caliphate spread from from um spain all the way over to afghanistan and the the guy invited him to come to the palace and right there in baghdad you've got this debate about the trinity and the incarnation and it's you've got the courage of this man in the face of potential execution because he's got no he's got no political power and um we we can take a real lesson Mm -hmm. from from these men
1: Wow, Michael, this might be, I think of the IMB. I'm thinking of our own uh, convention of churches and uh, for our missionaries on the front lines. You're right, with the rise of Islam all over the world, how important will it be to pray for the courage to be Trinitarian? Uh, We often think it's a battle for the Bible and we have to defend the Bible. Well, yeah, but are we going to have the courage to be Clearly, Trinitarian in the face of of an Islamic world. Well, Michael, we didn't even get to some things I wanted to just put you on the hot seat with. I wanted to talk about this whole controversy today, of eternal functional subordination and eternal generation and these things. There, there, there are a lot of discussions about the Trinity today, and I guess maybe in a word, could I ask you this: Are they helpful in the main? Are there is there more heat than light? Uh, do you sense that it's a healthy discussion for evangelicals to be having uh, about the Trinity to the extent that you're up on this? Yeah.
2: Or, um, <clears throat> so when I was um, in my final couple of years of my doctoral work, when I was in my late 20s, uh, I was at Wycliffe College in Toronto, and there was a young woman came, um, a theolog student. She was doing an MDiv, and she raised the question, why, why do we pray to God as Father? And she said i never pray to god as father i always call god mother and um little did i know <clears throat> i mean i was studying at the time trinitarian controversies in the fourth century the arian controversy and the end of the arian controversy what's called the nematomachian controversy about the deity of the spirit little did i know that those were not going to be the controversies that would dominate the next 40 years of my academic career but what this woman raised gender so we had you know talking about god then we had the issues of the um issues that deal with theological anthropology uh homosexuality now transgenderism transhumanism and maybe because i wasn't trained in those areas i mean i've had to learn obviously to think about those subjects from a historical vantage point but uh, i'm weary of those discussions so I've I've said a number of times in the past five to seven years, man, I I just like to be transported back in time to the fourth century and have debates about the Trinity rather than fighting about, you know, what does it mean to male? What is what does it mean to be male and female? Now, of course, you have to fight where the battle is, but and then when this brouhaha blew up on the internet, uh, I thought it was I thought it was healthy. Uh, Healthy in this sense. Uh, I think sometimes okay. the language, there was ignorance in, in both sides. But I think it was healthy because it forced us back to basics. Even more basic than what does it mean to be a human being is who is God? And how does He exist imminently yes. in the persons of the Father, Son, and Spirit? And um, if for no other reason that it is brought to, to light, uh, some of the riches of the past. I mean, I've uh, seen articles now and books going back and reading Augustine on the relationship between the Father and the Son, or Basil, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and so on. And we're asking questions that of the tradition and forcing us to become more Trinitarian. Uh, I think it's been. I think it's been helpful. I mean, I have a distinct position on the issue, but. Broadly, I think it has forced us to become more trinitarian, and I'm thankful for that. For the, in that sense, for the controversy. What I'm not thankful for is the the way in which the people, some of the people involved, spoke about each other. What we're dealing with here are Christian brothers mm-hmm. who should have been able to sit down at a table, eat, spend a weekend together. In fact, in the early stages of it, I actually suggested that to some of those who are kind of primary characters. I said, why don't you all get together? I I said, I'd even arrange for a payment for a hotel. Go to a hotel for three or four days. Just hang out together, pray together, worship together, eat meals together. And I'm sure it would change the whole tone of the dialogue. But having said all that, yeah, I think that that controversy has been helpful. It's forced us to be more trinitarian. I hope. Michael, I I love
1: that point, and I think at it, one point in the last year or two, I, I sent some tweet out just saying, you know, I'm just so glad we're arguing about the Trinity, <laughs> and not and not some insignificant thing. So I I agree with you, and I like you have strong you know yeah. convictions about some of these things, and uh, but I'm just glad that's what we're talking about i mean may, maybe we can now yeah. like get after the lord's supper and like things that actually matter you know, whether so after the trinity let's continue uh coming out of you know the 80s and the 90s and the worship wars and when music and i don't know that stuff's important but i'd Amen. like to discuss the trinity that's those are matters of first importance that uh, we need to keep at the heart of the faith so very good well michael i'll enjoy next week with you as we continue our pilgrimage through the Baptist Confession of Faith we will go back in time and try to show its relevance for today. So I look forward to that.
0: Beads podcast is in partnership with h and Publishing of a formed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of Church History, Biblical Spirituality, Christian Living, and Theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.